To this week's Into the Wilderness podcast, it's uh, it's been hot, very hot for the last. What, well, it feels two weeks. like weeks, actually. Yeah, it feels like. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here in shorts and t-shirt. And uh, all of our Australian listeners, you'd be laughing because we're complaining about the heat. But it's quite unusual. Well, we no, we won't complain. We're not complaining. I'm actually loving it. But um, it's been really good weather here. It hasn't rained at all for three weeks. I think mm. at yeah. least three weeks. My garden's feeling. I've actually, for the first time since I moved into that house, I've actually had to go and water my garden. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. There's, the rivers are so low right now. It's yeah, and the fish have been the fish have been suffering a bit. Well, the fishermen have been suffering because the fish haven't been in the river. The question is, if it stays long for a long period of time, like it did a few years ago, and the fish and the migratory fish are trying to get into the river, it can cause a lot of disease. Yeah, with all of course the warm, it does. With yeah. all the warm water, but it depends if they're actually in the system and get warm, or if they haven't actually arrived in the system yet and they're still out at sea, then they might get away with it. So we'll have to see what happens. Another thing that I'm interested to see. Now we're just getting into. Uh, well, near the start of June, is are we going to see pink salmon this year? Because it's about this yes, time last year. I think so. I, I don't see why not. Why Why wouldn't we? We'll see. We how. saw large-ish numbers last year, so unless they get completely lost and none of them find their way back here at all, then... Well, the, the ones that sp- we know that some successfully spawned, because yeah. uh, Chris Conroy up in at Loch Ness um, recorded some successful spawning and hatching. Uh, and we, so we obviously won't be seeing them because they will have only just gone out to sea. But yeah, maybe we'll we'll see some more over from Scandinavia. Watch the space. We'll certainly report on it. We were the very first to report on it uh, last year, and even broke it to the news. So we will you will hear it here first as soon as we hear something. And uh, on the the news this morning, uh, they were talking about swifts and swallows, uh, saying that they have seen a reduction in numbers this year. Uh, and they reckon it's, and they're late and they're late and they reckon it's one of the reasons is due to harsh conditions across the Sahara Desert it's absolutely insane when you think about the journey these little birds make you know when I listened to the same radio program as I was driving in this morning and when they mentioned that part of the Sahara and I knew that that was part of their migratory route and I was just thinking to myself as I was driving there by myself this tiny little bird in this vast open hostile environment it's incredible that they ever make it. I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> if I was a bird, I would stick where I was. Uh, uh, but I, I've been quite pleased to see them around my house. I, I was anticipating... I built a new garage uh, about six months ago, and it's got the perfect overhang for swallow nests. And I was anticipating this year to just be rammed with swallow nests from front to end on both sides but they haven't done it and i don't know whether maybe the paint's too slippy or maybe they need a season or two to maybe find they need a way. season or two but i mean they, they typically because if you look at the other houses they typically always go back to the same You're places right, yeah. so if but the youngsters need, need somewhere new. yeah but i mean if there's been a reduction then they don't need the space yeah, i don't know if anyone space. else has noticed a reduction of, in them let us know let us know It'll be interesting to find out if you think there has. But we were talking about insects last year, the year before, about um, the splatter test on cars. My car is completely covered, which last year it wasn't. Yeah. So maybe inter- we've got an increase of insects. Interesting you should say that, because when we drove back from the Northern Shooting Show, and I was in my Land Rover, which isn't 
the most uh, sensitive vehicle for hitting bugs in the air because it's basically a brick at the front. <laughs> uh, it was it was covered, and even my other vehicle that I drive day to day to work is just splattered everywhere. Yeah, my my motorbike, uh, my helmet was completely covered as well when I was uh, doing it. I think Byron in the background was either rendering something on the timeline because I can actually hear speaking and it sounds like there is... I was rendering something on the timeline. Yeah, well, then... I, we can, Daryl can tell you what it is because by the time this podcast goes out, I think the film will be live. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's our trip in Svalbard, uh, which is really, really exciting. We're super excited to get it out and... Well, I I don't really know what to say about it because it's hard to describe. I think people just need to watch the film when it comes out. I had uh, rendered it on timeline and it was busy playing in the background. So yeah, it's uh, it's almost ready to go. Hopefully, we should be uploading it today uh, as we finish this podcast. I hope so. I hope so. We'll put up all the links on social media um, and check out um, Sandgrass Travel and Expeditions because because I think it will be on their Facebook page first. It, it will be. Yeah. Um, so we'll. Uh, Put up all the links. Uh, will it be a short trailer or not? No, I. I, th- I mean, we need to speak thing. to Johnny, but I think it's it's about seven minutes. Uh, so it will basically just going to be the full film. Uh, I was actually when I was having my haircut yesterday. I was uh, <coughs> we were talking about the weather as you do when you have your haircut, and I was explaining to the the lady who was cutting my hair that I was just about to go to New Zealand and how cold it was there because the winters actually come early. And that we had been in some pretty cold environments uh, this year in in Svalbard, and I was trying to explain to her that screw the beach holidays go somewhere you've never been before like go to an environment like that that pushes you outside your comfort zone and you might think oh you know it's minus 25 how can that be fun it but is. it's just it's so great to experience something so far removed from the norm yeah try when you when you're thinking of holidays try to think of something that not everyone goes to because then you've got a story. Um, we've to done a lot of traveling. I mean, a lot of traveling around the world. And I have places that I've been, that I've been due to work or something, that I would never in a million years pay to go and see, mainly being Dubai, being one of the places. Uh, I'm sorry if you do enjoy going to Dubai, but I think it is one of the most boring places on the planet. It's it's so fake. Everything's fake. I can make no it. comment here because I've never it, been. It's It's basically giant shopping malls and water parks, and then fake beaches. I spent eight months out there, and it, even the ocean is dead. Even the ocean is that bored of the place, it's dead. <laughs> um, I've dived all over the place. You actually have to go out of the basin towards like Oman or Abu Dhabi or places like that, which I would say are better places, by the way. I've been to uh, both of them, and they are way better places for me personally. Um, I'm just not a big fan of Dubai. I don't get it. I don't get it because people are like, oh, the, the shopping's amazing. Yeah, but it's the same crap you can buy there. Or online. Or online <laughs> that you can buy in the UK, but the difference is you can maybe buy a gold-plated version of it. Over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to completely change the subject, and because it's caught my eye, we've got the, the pile of National Geographic sitting underneath our desk here. Have you received your new one uh, for this month, though? No. Because in the interview with Charles Post, he said that the issue that's come out this month is wrapped in paper and not plastic. I didn't. Well, I definitely noticed that if it came yeah, came yeah. in. Yeah, because no. it's always got a plastic film. Yeah, it on. does. Yeah, because often there's like little. The, the, the one thing, that, and what really annoys me with all of these magazines is when you open them up, there's about thirty leaflets inside that instantly go in the bin. Yeah. Know, all these well, magazines. Even, do National it. even National Geographic does it, and it kind of uh, it amazes one. It amazes me that advertisers think that works. Because I, I, I literally take the magazine and I shake it and then all of them come out and then they go straight in the bin, all of them. Probably recycling. 
well, yeah, I've yeah, the paper bin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good point actually, because for me, uh, paper leaflet advertising. I didn't think we were going to get to this in our intro, but paper <laughs> leaflet advertising does not work at all. Because I do exactly, I get my Land Rover magazine that you uh, got me for my birthday, yeah. which must be coming up for an expiry. It's a nice, it would be a nice uh, birthday present again. I thought for, I got for your Christmas. Is it Christmas? Yeah, oh, so, so I've still got another still six months. Six months. months. Uh, that has the same thing. It's got a whole pile of stuff inside it. And yeah, it just goes straight in the recycling. It's not even interesting, most of the stuff. No. I, I used to look at it, but I don't anymore. But I'll look forward to that. And apparently Donnie Vincent is in Men's Health. I'm not sure if he's actually in the physical copy. But he was but definitely. You get that too, don't you? I do get the the physical copy, but I've not seen him in it at all. Yeah, I don't know if it's, I, well, I don't know if it's next month's or it's an American no, it's version. Out. It's, it's out, out already, yeah. So if you have seen the Men's Health with Donny Vincent in it, and you, um, it's not in the UK because I haven't seen it so far. If you are one of our listeners in the United States, have a look out for it. And if you do have it, maybe um, send us a picture or something. We would like yeah. to read it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. That would be cool. Yeah, and. Talking of Donnie Vincent, he has just been on the Joe Rogan podcast. Yes, he has. I don't know how long it was. It was probably over two hours at least. He had him in the studio, which is really cool. We're we're eventually one day aiming for that kind of studio setup. We will get there. We will get there. It's just time. So I've not I've not heard any of the podcast yet, but I guarantee it'll be awesome. Hopefully, it's going to be out for me traveling this week, so I can listen to it. When I was listening in, they were talking about um, processed meat and like laboratory meat. I think. Oh, growing. Growing Where they grow meat? I think that's what they were talking about when I was listening to it. We have the winner from the competition that we ran to win a pair of tickets to the game fair at Schoon. Yep, which we are very excited about going to. Uh, it was a Facebook and Instagram competition, but you could also email us in the podcast. I don't think we got any emails uh, this week. Everyone no, must we have, didn't everyone actually. Must have entered over social. There's a lot of it, entries over social Usually. media. So randomly selected from uh, both Facebook and Instagram is Andrea Nairn from Northumberland. Uh, and I took a note that was actually a Facebook entry. Uh, so, congratulations. There is a pair of tickets for you. All you have to do is contact us at the show. Podcast or- at paceproductionsuk.com. It should be in the description. And, yeah, contact us and we'll square you away with some tickets. And we have another pair of tickets. It's another show. Another pair of tickets to give yeah. away. Uh, we're going to do basically a very similar thing to, we, to what we did last time. So keep an eye out on our social media. As the podcast goes out, the new competition will go out as well. So if you if you are not Andrea Nairn, uh, but you still would like to win a pair of tickets, then go onto Facebook, go onto Instagram, and enter the next competition to win. Easy peasy. You might as well. It's worth, it's worth a punt. It but definitely we is. do ask that you only enter if you can actually go to the show, because yeah. otherwise it's just a bit of a waste. Uh, and we're going to be there, so we look forward to seeing you, if you're going. Uh, update on Modern Huntsman. Uh, it is, from our understanding, we're out of stock again. We sold out in four days of it coming back in. We we, we're, we're, we tell you, you've got to get your orders in quickly, otherwise uh, you have to wait longer. Um, so we sold out within four days of the latest shipment coming into the UK. Um, we've actually had to hold back a little bit of stock because we need to make sure we've got some for the game fair. That's um, And... They have just finished printing more Modern Huntsmen in the US because they actually ran out in the US as well. Uh, so we should, fingers crossed, halfway through next month, I imagine, because it takes about two weeks to arrive, mm-hmm. um, we should have more back in stock. Uh, and if you want to be in that next shipment, then put in your order now because we already have, I would say, 
I, I don't I've know. actually lost count. There's yeah, a lot of pre-orders. We've already got a, pr- a lot of pre-orders coming in, so there is a high chance by the time the next order comes in, they're already all sold sold out, which and, is what's been happening. And also, we've got quite a number of people who've asked for signed copies. So if you need, if you want that, you need to get that order in now with a note to say you want it signed because we'll be placing that order quite soon and we'll yeah. have to let them know what needs Exactly, to be exactly. And um, everyone that's... Uh, ordered a signed copy they've all been happy to wait because it might not come in this shipment it might be the following shipment so we've said two to three months be prepared to wait and everyone's message back saying i don't mind waiting which is nice we have our our usual competition um which we need to run this week uh which is going to be to win a vintage hornady reloading sign i thought i'd actually run out of these but there's actually two or three left in the loft uh and it is it is one of the favorites of the competitions that, that we win so again we're gonna run it on social i think what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna just uh, ask a question question which is what ammo do you like to use while you're hunting uh, we use a lot of Hornady ammo, hence the reason we've got so much Hornady gear. Um, I think I run it through my 6.5, I run it through my 308. I run the 75 grain stuff through my 243, which I think you can actually only get in the UK. So sorry if you're, um, sorry if you're a. And uh, once again, Byron has forgot to turn off his phone. So first of all, it was speakers, and now it's a phone. Um, so yeah, but as Byron said, the Hornady reloading sign and. We have uh, one of them up in our office. I think we've got one in our ha- both our houses. Uh, there was one I've got one on me. Th- you know what? I think the one in the office has been nabbed and given away. I have one. Uh, sorry, sorry about the phone, listeners. Uh, very, not very professional. Uh, but I have one on my reloading bench. Oh, there you have it. Um, so, as Byron said, we'll put up a picture, and then all you need to do is put the which caliber you want you like using yeah well, i'll said? just ask a question i mean I, i'm curious to know uh i think maybe you know what ammo do you use okay yeah um and if you for some reason can't be bothered entering the competition i'd still be curious to know uh what ammo you're using so feel free to write into the show or send us a message now when this goes out byron will probably be on a plane heading to new zealand uh how long are you going for uh you get back on the 20th of so like almost three weeks three weeks, yeah. three weeks. Um, I would have been joining him but my knee is um, I did a, a 10k walk on Saturday and then I did a similar walk on Sunday and I can feel it a little bit in my leg so I don't think going up to the mountains in New Zealand would be a good idea probably not so uh, I will not be joining him I have been to New Zealand before so it's you know what I actually think it's worse me not going because I know what I'm missing out on <laughs> I'm a I'm a little bit apprehensive to be honest because I know it's going to be freaking hard where we're going. I know that uh, Joseph Peters from Hard Yards Hunting, who I'm going to be filming, is like a mountain goat and absolutely nails. And I've uh, I haven't really put any of this stuff up on social, but um, I've actually been training for the last three months. I've dropped a shed load of weight, uh, but I haven't been able to do you know idea in an ideal world I'd stick a backpack on and I'd walk into the the hills for three four hours a day, but you just can't do it when you're trying to work and run a business and do stuff at just domestic things. So I've had to do a combination of uh, running sort of short runs up mountains, swimming and gym work. And a week ago, I pinged something in the back of my calf. So that's kind of put me back this week. And uh, two days ago, when I was working on my Land Rover, I popped something in my chest, which has been rather painful ever since. So I'm just going to have to man up and toughen through it. But yeah. It's going to be good. Um, I, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't. The, the closest experience I have is the one with Daryl uh, in Norway uh, two it, years ago. It is. It is like that. 
Yeah, which was hard. So I am a combination of excited and apprehensive. Yeah. Uh, But I will give you all the feedback when I get back from New Zealand. And with any luck, also bring uh, one, possibly two podcasts from the country. Now, I think we should probably get into the podcast. Yes, we should, because this Uh, is awesome. We had uh, a great uh, chat with um, Kim Hughes, GC. And uh, yeah, it was awesome having him on. It was wicked him telling the story firsthand and uh we were we were both fans of the book uh they wrote uh painting the sand and the well i I think the best way to do it is just google it um and then you decide it's the paperbacks out hardbacks out and we listen to it on audiobook and uh we didn't actually talk about it during the the show but the audiobook um we were talking we spoke to him about the narrator picking the narrator and that the narrator is really good uh, so if you do a lot of driving and you consume this podcast, as most of you do, probably commuting, um, then have a have a think about downloading the audio. Audio um, Audible, who I think is part of Amazon, give you one month free trial. Right. So you can get one book for free. So if you're going to use it on a book, I recommend this one. Uh, but if you don't want to contact Karen Listing, I suggest you cancel your direct debit like straight away on your Audible. Otherwise, they will just keep charging you. But I, you go, top I, tip. Top tip. Well, I, I've, um, I, I found this out the hard way about two years ago, and then I came back like three months later, realized I'd been charged, but I had loads of credits. But the really cool, cool thing with the credits, you just buy the books, and then they just stay on your account forever. So it wasn't wasted. I still listen to all the books. But now I've actually upped my my uh, my membership because I consume that, I consume that many books now. Um, but it, it was really cool having a chance to speak to somebody whose book we had uh, listened to. And it was also really great to do, although we, we talk a little bit about um, hunting towards the end of this podcast, because that's the common connection that's managed to bring us together. This podcast isn't really about that. It's about life experience and, mm-hmm. and a really great story from a great person. Yeah. Um, and him talking about, um, I, don't really, I don't really want to say incredible events because they were they weren't. They were, and they weren't. It was. He did incredible things. Well, they were life changing with events, incredible with an incredible team. Um, so I'm going to actually read um, his citation uh, that he. Uh, well, it was the full official citation of Staff Sergeant Kim Hughes um, uh, of the Royal Logistics Corps, um, which illustrates his heroism. So this is what he uh, got the the GC for. Uh, so I'll read the full thing out. Which is the George Cross. Which is the George Cross. On 16th of August 2009, Staff Sergeant Hughes, a high-threat improvised explosive device disposal, I'm going to start using the abbreviations, which is IEDD, operator, along with the Royal um, Engineers Search Team, REST, uh, was tasked to provide close support to the 2 Rifles Battalion during an operation to clear a route southwest of Sangen. In preparation for the operation, elements of A Company deployed early to secure emergency helicopter landing site and isolate compounds to the south of the route as part of the inner cordon. Whilst conducting these preliminary moves, the point section initiated a victim-operated IED uh, resulting in very serious casualty. During the casualty recovery that followed, the stretcher bearers initiated a second VO IED that resulted in two personnel being killed outright and four others being... uh, other 
sorry, four other very serious casualties, one of whom died later from his wounds. The area was, was effectively an ID minefield overwatched by the enemy and the section were stranded within it. Hughes and his team were called into the harrowing and chaotic situation to extract the casualties and recover the bodies. Speed was absolutely essential if further lives were not to be lost. Without special protective clothing in order to save time, Hughes set about clearing a path to the injured, providing constant reassurance that help was on its way. On reaching the first badly injured soldier, he discovered a further VO IED within one metre of the casualty. Given their proximity, constituted a grave and immediate threat to the lives of all the casualties. Without knowing the location of the power source, but acutely attuned to the lethal danger he was facing and the overriding need to get medical attention to the casualties rapidly, Hughes calmly carried out manual neutralization of the device. Any error would have proved instantly fatal. This was a Category A action only conducted in one of two circumstances, a hostage scenario where explosives have been strapped to an innocent individual and a mass casualty event where not taking action is certain to result in further casualties. Both place the emphasis on saving other people's lives, if necessary, at the expense of the operator. It was an extraordinary act with... Uh, shots keeping the enemy at bay, Hughes coolly turned his attention to reaching the remaining casualties and retrieving the dead. Clearing a path forward, he discovered two further VOIDs and twice more carried out manual neutralization. His utterly selfless action enabled all the casualties to be extracted and the bodies to be recovered. Even at this stage, Hughes' task was not finished. The Royal Engineers search team had detected a further four VOIDs in the immediate area, and stoically, uh, like he had on 80 other occasions in the last f five months, he set about disposing of them too. Dealing with any form of ID is dangerous. To deal with seven VOIDs linked in a single circuit in a mass casualty scenario using manual neutralization techniques once, never mind three times, is the single most outstanding act of explosive ordnance disposal ever recorded in Afghanistan. That he did it without the security of a specialist protective clothing serves even more to demonstrate his outstanding gallantry. Hughes is unequivocally deserving of the highest level of public recognition. Apologies for the, the few blunders throughout. It was quite <laughs> well, a long There you thing. go. Uh, an impressive story which you're about to hear firsthand from, from the man himself. You are, and that's why we encourage you to read the book because it goes into a lot of detail. But that was the the citation. I think I believe it was in the London Gazette that was uh, read out. So um, enjoy the show, Kim. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, and you're probably a very busy man. And also, it's lovely outside. So uh, Friday afternoons is probably not not for sitting on a podcast, but probably being outside with a beer. Um, but uh, it was very strange how we kind of got in contact with you because we finished uh, your book a few months ago now, wasn't it, Byron? Yeah. We actually, uh, well, for me, yeah, well, it probably was about uh, a month ago, but you finished it before me. We almost did it in one car journey, the entire book, listening to it, uh, which is quite impressive. I actually sat in the driveway one day and finished the book for about 30 minutes in the drive uh, just to finish it off. And when we mentioned it on the podcast, then... Uh, John from uh, from Blackwells, from Blackwell's uh, contacted us saying, incidentally, uh, he he knew you, and that's how we got put in touch. Which is uh, very grateful for that. Sure. Now we, um, I think we'll we'll start by talking about your book because your paperbacks just come out last week, was it? 
Yeah, yeah, it came out Thursday last week. First of all, let's go back a little bit in in time and talk about the the motivations because we'll, we'll go into the the book in a second. But your your motivations and and getting into the army to begin with because it wasn't the the easiest ride to start with. No, no, not at all. I mean, I um I was uh, I was brought up in a place called Shropshire in Telford. Um, uh, I had a pretty crappy upbringing to be brutally honest you know i had a, a, an abusive stepfather i i struggled at school um and I, I was actually a forces child my 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 father and my stepfather were both in the forces so i kind of bounced around a lot and so that's all i really knew so obviously leaving leaving school with no sort of education whatsoever the the army kind of was my my escape from all of that you first joined the army, but then you you dropped out. How long did you actually initially were you in for your first time round? Yeah, not 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 very long at all. Um, you know, I, I did the whole. Uh, I joined at seventeen, I think it was, um, and then I only got through halfway through my basic training before I I was kind of homesick really, and and I actually had a girlfriend at the time, so there was that little bit of pressure there. Um, and then got out and funnily enough broke up with her two weeks later after I'd, I'd left the army and <laughs> and yeah and then I kind of bounced around for a year not really knowing what to do with myself and realizing that actually I, I missed the the kind of discipline and the camaraderie of, of being in the armed forces so I, I subsequently rejoined. Do you think you were just too young it was just too early for you at that stage? Yeah potentially and, and not really knowing what I wanted to do in the army as well um it kind of it, it was a bit of a weird one for me. Um, I, as I said, I, I I had nothing really going for me back at home. But when I joined the army, I kind of missed my. I actually missed my mum. I missed my mates, um, girlfriend at the time. Um, and yeah, probably I literally stepped from my last day at school straight into the army careers office. Um, and then it kind of all unfolded from there. But again, joining the army a year, or rejoining the army a year later, and it subsequently worked for me the second time around. You know, there'll be a lot of people um, in a kind of similar situation to that, or at the very least getting through school, maybe not enjoying it that much, and really having no kind of idea what they want to do with themselves. On a sort of general advice kind of basis from what you learned through that so those few years of your life where you were trying to find what it was that you wanted to do what, what would you say to those those kind of people not necessarily to go and join up for the army but just generally speaking because you well, must have learned a lot in that period of time yeah no absolutely i mean you i what i would say is if you if you want to go and do something um go and do it go and go embrace sort of your uh your um I was going to say desires, but it's not really the right word. If you, you know, if you want to go and be a soldier, go and be a soldier. If you, if you want to join um, the, the the RAF, the Navy, whatever. If you want to go be a fireman, go and do that. You know, don't don't hold back. Um, uh, that's one thing that I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to join the army. It's partly because that's all I really knew, but I wanted to go and do that, um, and I did it. I mean, don't and don't let people tell you what you want to do. You know, um, and and just 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 go for it. You know, it's, that's all I can really say. And you know, I, I joined the army, and I am the person I am today because of that. 
Um, and I, funnily enough, I subsequently, one of the reasons why I wrote my book was to, to show people or, or kids of that sort of ilk now from what I used to be, you know, life is greener on the other side. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. You know, if you, if you really, really want something and you strive for that, then, then grasp it with both hands and, and absolutely go and do it. Yeah. You must be probably one of very, well, one of very few people that got the George Cross to begin with, but. Uh, one of very few people that dropped out and joined back up again and then got the jo- uh, George Cross. That might be the only one. <laughs> the only yeah. one, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it was kind of, it's kind of weird the way life kind of works out, you know. Um, and, I, you know, I joined, the, I joined the Army as a driver. I never really joined. I never joined the Army to do bomb disposal. I joined as a as exactly that and little did i know at the time that this sort of army careers office had a quota and i was something like driver number six that day that they required you know so i went in there being told that being a driver in the army was the best possible job you could ever have um and when i went and did it i was like okay yeah it's great but you know i want something else and funnily stumbled into bomb disposal um and uh, and that's that's pretty much the way i went with it and yeah so so to receive to, to go through everything that I've been through, you know, um, a crappy upbringing to joining the army, to getting out of the army, to getting back in, to then moving on to bomb disposal, to subsequently being awarded the George Cross is just, it's just crazy. It's like a roller coaster. What was the, what was the experience walking into the careers office for the second time? Was it the same, same uh, person behind the desk saying, what are you doing back? No, yeah, no, no, it wasn't. It was, it was a different guy, but some, almost almost like met with a bit of hostility because it's like you know you've you've we gave you a a chance the first time around um, which you pretty much just threw back in our face if you want to call it that way so why why should we give you another chance i mean looking at it now i absolutely i I know 100 percent that you know they needed people to join the army so it might have been a bit of a sort of um to say face on their part but it's it was it was like you you know you need to convince us that you're not going to bail on us again <laughs> um so i mean once i once i got past that kind of initial um hostility if you will it, they were they were kind of cool you know they were like yeah we get it um you know come back in and see see if you can if you can make a, a sort of life of it it's it's quite funny when you mentioned the the quota thing because when I went to the careers office, they were trying to fill quotas of things when I was there as well. Uh, Submariner being one of the biggest ones, um, trying to offer you a bit of cash just to make it make it sweet. But um, yeah. you, if you want to do something, I think, like you just said, stick to what you want to do. Because I ended up doing what I wanted to do, even though it meant waiting an extra year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and that's kind of the trap that people I certainly used to fall into. You know, your next trade, the trade course that you want, isn't for a year, isn't for another eighteen months. So, do you want to you want to stay in this holding unit, or do, you know what? Let's go and do something else. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's it's kind of it kind, of, but it's good. I mean, if if you, that's what you want, and absolutely stick to your guns. I think to give a just a, a bit of context and background uh, for our listeners before we touch on a few elements of the of your book but not, not too many because we want people we want to, people go, and to, go, and to go and listen to it as well <laughs> um, talk about the period from when you got back in up until the the, the sort of primary deployments um yeah so yeah i mean i i, I joined back up i went to uh, army training regiment per right where you do your your initial um, basic training 
Um, and I, I think I spent about 11 weeks there and it's a lot of running around like a lunatic and being shouted at and being told that you're worthless and not very good at what you're doing. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it, it's great. It's what, what we joined the army for. Um, and then, as I said, I joined as a driver. So I then got sent to a place called Deep Cuts, which is, um, the, kind of the home of the Royal Logistic Corps. Um, and I kind of hung around there, like we've just discussed there, for my driving courses to, to kind of take place, uh, which was up in um, in the north. Um, and then once all that had been completed, I then got my first assignment, my first posting, which was in Catrick um, in North Yorkshire. And, uh, you know, I spent a couple of years there out and about doing bits and bobs, you know, driving big army green trucks, because that was my job. Um, and it was only really on a, uh, a deployment to Northern Ireland um, where I got assigned to drive the bomb disposal teams. And it was there that I had my first kind of taste of bomb disposal and to see what it was all about. And I was, I was hooked straight away. What what was it about it? What was it that enthused you? Um, it was just, it was just probably something new, not understanding, you know, cause I was driving the teams out into Belfast when there was a bomb shout um, and then seeing seeing the guy, the, the the operator, literally talking to the police and interacting with them, and, and for me it was everyone was it was weird because everyone was looking at him, you know, held on his every word. It was, it was almost like what he said was um, was was gold. He he was the guy that they came to to solve the problem, and then when he put his bomb disposal suit on and walked down the road, I was that was me. I was I was I was taken by. It. I was like trying to find out more information what's he doing why is he wearing that you know what's he what's he going down the road to deal with um and it's only through working with those teams and it's a very close-knit sort of team um, that you deploy with you kind of get to know about the job and and what they're doing and and again bomb disposal taking stuff apart you know the, the risk you know the adrenaline it, it i was instantly hooked mm. it's you know the that period in Northern Ireland. It's not something that we talk about very much anymore. And I, well, I remember it as a kid, just right at the end, before the, the sort of the peace process um, was implemented. What was that sort of, especially for our younger listeners who may have not even really been conscious of it at all? What was that sort of period of our, our history like? Because you will have seen it from both sides, being back here and then actually being part of it over in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it was it was such a re- it's such a weird one because you you go from being here, you know, out and about doing whatever it is you do for your, your day job, to going over there where, you know, you're in an armoured vehicle, you're wearing body armour, you're wearing a helmet, you, you're armed. Um, and that was my first real taste of deployment, you know, going out on the streets, uh, in, in, as I said, in Belfast, being armed with a rifle and a pistol, you know, worrying about people wanting to, to, to kill you, you know. Um, so it, it was so strange. And, and to be going out on the ground and doing um, the devices we were doing and clearing them. And funnily enough, I was, I was in Belfast not long ago and I was walking down the same street um, which I remember driving down with my blue lights on and a bomb being at the end of it. That's surreal. Um, and it was just so it's so surreal. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And you just kind of, it's it's weird because you're then like, I would never be here. It's like I would never be doing what I'm doing now, you know, however many years ago, uh, back, you know, before, back in 1999, <sighs> I wouldn't be in, you know, a pair of jeans and a shirt. I'd be in combat body armor helmet with a rifle. Like you know, a parallel life almost. So, 
yeah absolutely so strange and what was the from northern ireland when that finished for you what was the next next thing that you you moved on to um, I so I came back from Northern Ireland and I retraded. So I I then retraded to what was what is known as an ammunition technician. So that's what the trade we are to go into bomb disposal. And that's pretty much you learn everything there is to know about ammo from from bullets to bombs to to uh, missile systems to mortars etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And you you learn everything there is to know about that. Um, and that's before you get onto the bomb disposal part. And then I. I've been then posted. I retrained, retrained, and then bounced around the place. I spent a lot of time in Germany, um, and then subsequently, you, when you progress through the ranks, um, you then go and do your bomb disposal courses. And you know, in between all of that, you know, I did a, a two tours of Bosnia. I, I went to Iraq. You know, um, and just bouncing. I went back to Northern Ireland a number of times as well. So, so it's kind of cool, and it's basically just trying to learn the learn your trade and and get the experience under your belt and being as good at it as you possibly can be which which is kind of yeah, important yeah, when you're in <laughs> when you're in bomb disposal yeah and fu- but funnily enough you know i didn't um when i talk about it in the book i didn't actually do much bomb disposal in the first you know first few years of me retrading you know i wanted to do that i wanted to be that guy um and subsequently i i got sent to germany as my first assignment as an ammunition technician to be told in Germany we don't do any bomb disposal because the Germans do it all. If there's anything on a on a camp, we do it, but everything outside the wire belongs to the Germans. So we're like, oh great. Um, so I kind of spent three years there treading water. I mean, I came back to the UK every now and again to to cover duties so that I could get some experience under my belt. But I didn't actually do that much. Um, and funnily enough, it was only when I came back to the the UK to stand in for guys that were going on leave or courses or whatever. That's where my experience, my initial experience, was gained. In in your book, you um, you explain uh, about how explosives work and um, the makeup of IDs and so on. What? How did you decide what level you needed to go to? Because, I mean, it can be as complicated as you want, or as it can be as basic as you want to explain it. How did you decide what yeah. kind of level you went in at? Well, the, the thing is, when when I decided to write the book, um, when I was wor- working through the chapters and trying to trying to get the point across, obviously I talk about bomb disposal and etc. Um, and the devices I was dealing with in Afghanistan, but I, I kind of realised that some people might not understand the process of how a device is made, how explosives work, why explosives do what they do. So it was, it was as, as the chapter says, you know, um, in layman's terms, um, it was the very, very basics so that people understand, you know, when I talk about a detonator, what a detonator is, when I talk about a main charge, I'm talking about the main explosive content of the device. Um, but then when I was talking to, to people about the book, they were, they were questioning me, well, what is a detonator? What does it do? What is the main, what is the explosives? You know, everyone hears um, Semtex and C4 on films and all this sort of stuff, but they trying to understand what it does and why it does what it, you know, what, what effect it has. So that then spurred me on to go into a little bit more detail of, you know, explosive compositions and chemical makeups. But, Again, in such a way that it is very straightforward for people to understand. How how did your the the, de- the deployment to Afghanistan? How did that? How was that different to the other deployments you'd been on? Because it was a, a very different type of conflict. 
Yeah, I, so I so my other deployments, I had either gone out as um, a second in command of a team, so I would operate the robots, and I would be a junior NCO, so I'd look after the equipment. Um, when I went to Bosnia, I was a senior NCO, but we weren't really doing much improvised explosive device disposal. Um, Afghanistan, certainly in that period of time, was a was a, a whole new ball game. You know, the, the, the IED was the Taliban's weapon of choice and they were absolutely everywhere. So to, to go and operate in that environment, you have to pass what was then known as the high threat course, um, enabling you to do bomb disposal in a high threat environment. So the, the, the course itself is extremely difficult. Um, as you can imagine, they're not going to lower the standards um, because that's when it all goes wrong. But so I subsequently passed that course and then went out to Afghanistan where everything you've learned on your course, which is of a gold standard, you know, so you utilize a robot, you wear a bomb disposal, so you have a, a truck with uh, an extreme, uh, extremely uh, complex array of equipment um, to going out to Afghanistan to be told that's your body armor, that's your helmet, that's all you've got, get out there and do it. Because we were flying everywhere we went, we didn't have the the, the beauty of a, a vehicle. We couldn't carry around with us a fifty kilogram, you know, Kevlar bomb disposal suit or a robot. Because everywhere we went, we flew, and you carried what you could carry to sustain yourself on on the battlefield. Um, and it was very very different. Um, environment to operate in not to mention you know the heat people are trying to kill you you're getting shot at whilst you're doing bombs um etc etc your first couple of days there what was sort of running through your head once you were actually out on the ground and in the heat of the moment as it were i kind of i i remember wanting to ensure I did a good job um, and it, again it's such a surreal moment you know in training you do so many devices um, and if you get it wrong you know someone will tap you on the shoulder to say don't do that you've been too heavy-handed you know this would have killed you etc etc well now you're being now and you and if you do something wrong at training yeah you're like so what but actually now you're in an environment where if you do something wrong you'll be turned to red mist in a fraction of a second and you're not going to know about it. You know, so it's just, it's crazy. And you kind of need to be methodical. You kind of need, you, you know, I remember my first bomb, it took me forever. It took me so long because I didn't want to mess up and I didn't want to get it wrong. And I didn't want to disappoint people. So it, it took me forever. And obviously throughout my tour, I got a lot quicker at doing stuff. Um, I got a lot more confident. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a, a such such a different ball game to to what we train to kim for for people who uh which is the vast majority of us including me who would have apart from the fact that i've listened to your, your book so i i do have a kind of an idea from how you explained it but the actual disarming of an ied just talk us through that experience and what you're actually doing so people can paint a picture in their mind because you were doing a lot of it i, I guess start with start with how you are locating them to begin with, because you're you're working with a search team um, out there, and yeah. in, in some yeah. occasions it was obviously other people that found it, but you had a search team with you. So there was two elements to my team. There was the bomb disposal element, which consisted of me and a, a couple of other guys. Um, so my my second in command operated our equipment, my electronic countermeasures guy, and then my close protection guy, so like my my bodyguard who looked out for me when I was, you know 
messing around with devices. And then my other element to the team was um, my search team. So as, as you quite rightly said there, you know, we would either get called to something that has already been found or my search team would be searching an area of ground and they would subsequently find something for me to deal with. Now, once um, once that device has been found or whatever it has been found, you know, um, it was very difficult to sort of cordon and evacuate as you would in the UK in somewhere like Afghanistan because you just don't have the manpower to control that sort of area. But inevitably what I would have done is I would have had my metal detector with me and I would have gone down the road on my own um, to the device um, searching as I as I went. And even, even though that area had already been cleared, um, by default, everywhere I walked, I had a metal detector in front of me to ensure that I wasn't going to stand on something, if whether it had been missed or, or whatever. Um, it's just kind of the drills that, that we did. And then once on top of the device, if, if you can go as far as to say that, um, you know, something had already been confirmed for, for me to be called into that area, whether it be a wire, whether it be part of a pressure plate, whether it be a battery, whatever it may be. Uh, and then pretty much from that point on, you would just kind of interrogate the ground, whether that be with a metal detector in a passive kind of role or um, a paintbrush. Um, and that's where the terminology for the, or the, the, the title for the book came, Painting the Sand, because we would utilize a paintbrush to, to uncover the sand and to uncover parts of the device. Um, and then once you have the device in front of you and, the, you know, there there is no set way to render safe a device, each device is treated differently. There's not a book that tells you how to do it because inevitably that book would be never-ending because the device types can always change. Um, but what you're looking at doing is locating a power source or you're locating the this switching parts of the device. And that's where, as I, I talk about in the book, I would place uh, what is known as an EOD weapon, which is a disruptor or something that I can, uh, it's known as flying scalpels to cut a wire. Um, and again, it's not, it's not like you see in the movies where you know you're sweating with a pair of snips and it's a red wire, blue wire. Although it can be like that, and, and I did jobs like that, but inevitably we would render the device safe at a distance. So that if something was to go wrong, you know everyone's at a safe distance. So I, if I wanted to cut a wire, I would place a weapon system to enable me to cut that wire, and then I would dress back 100 meters. 50 meters, wherever it may be, and cut that wire remotely. And the same thing is if I wanted to pull an element or the whole device out of the ground, I wouldn't do it by hand because I would set myself up for a fall because the Taliban were very good at watching what we did. So if I was to pull something out of the ground by hand, tomorrow there would be another device attached to that first device. Um, so I would do it with lines and pulleys to to enable me to do that from a safe distance um, and then basically we're looking at breaking the device down removing the, the as I say the, the detonator getting the explosive chain reduced so that there is no risk whatsoever um, in kind of a nutshell there is obviously drills and skills that we do um, that enable us not to be targeted um, and bits of equipment that we use but the the actual bomb disposal um, part it can be relatively quick um, but it's it's having the ability, and it's not just about the bomb disposal part, it's having the ability to read the situation, to read the environment, to know why the device is actually there, um, as opposed to just going down the road and pulling it out. You know, you, you need to 
be sure that you're not setting yourself up or someone inevitably has set you up for a fail by their actions that they've conducted previously. So it's not literally just about the bomb disposal. You know, you have to be able to formulate threat assessments and understand that whole tactical environment. So there were eyes on you all the time, as in yeah, enemy yeah. eyes on you all the time when you were d- yeah, a- absolutely, disposal. absolutely. And um, you know, I one of my chapters in the book, um, "They're Trying to Kill Me," um, was was about exactly that. You know, they would they would set up hoax devices to get you into the area, um, and that would either be to get you there so that they can ambush you or it would be to watch your skills so that they can try and target those skills and they were very very good at that so that's uh, again i talk about it in in the book that's why my team and i we used an insane amount of smoke grenades because when i was on target if there was a line of sight from a compound or wherever it may be that could see what i was doing i would throw a, a load of smoke grenades to to basically fill that line of sight with smoke so that no one could see what I was doing and on some occasions I was literally I was I remember on a couple of occasions I was coughing my lungs up because there was so much smoke <laughs> around me that I couldn't actually see what I was doing and I was just you know I had to stand up and walk away because the the wind changed or whatever I was like this is just insane but what it meant is no one could target me or my team because they couldn't physically see what we were doing was the, the smoke grenade something that they taught you in training or was this something that you kind of brought in yourself i think it over it's over time so we learn from our predecessors we learn from our other operators so when our first guys went to um, afghanistan or iraq to basically because we knew that the enemy watched us and they were very good at targeting our skills well the only way to stop them from watching us was to to cut off that line of sight and a, a smoke grenade is absolutely fantastic for that um, there are, and again, I explain it. There are different types of smoke grenades, but a, a screening grenade is designed to produce an awful amount, an awful lot of smoke in a very small period of time. So you don't have to wait for it to build up. You just you just throw it. There's instant smoke, and then you can get about your business without worrying about someone seeing what you're doing. Hmm. As a uh, being in the position that you and you you and your team, you're you were tackling what what was one of the the biggest threats to everybody who was there i imagine that you 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 had a lot of friends everywhere very quickly whenever you arrived in a new place yeah absolutely and funny enough you almost feel sometimes like you're being kidnapped by that those units because you're because <laughs> we were such a small commodity um it was weird because you'd be you would be tasked the tasking message would come and say uh someone in a patrol base has found a pressure plate IED. As soon as that patrol base knew that they were getting a bomb disposal team, they would go out and reconfirm other IEDs that they had marked and avoided so that when you land, so you would take off in your in your helicopter knowing that you're going to deal with one. By the time you'd landed, they had gone out, reconfirmed three, four, five, six more and put a cordon in so you would land being told, actually, now you've got to clear six. Because um, then that allows the, our troops to have freedom of movement in their area, um, and then sometimes it would almost be like, right, we've done the job. We're now we're ready to go. Let's get helicopters to come and get us. And the unit would be like, oh no, you've been told. We've been told that you're staying with us. <laughs> when actually that's not the case. <laughs> but they they, <laughs> they, they wanted you there. Yeah, they wanted you there as their own sort of bomb disposal team. And to be honest, I don't. I, you don't blame them no, because why wouldn't you want that? You know, so 
so yeah, so that's that's kind of the way it went. But and and at the same time as well, you know, when there is a device to be dealt with, you are priority on the aircraft to get out there. But when there's when you've done the job, you're not priority anymore. Someone else gets the priority for the aircraft. So you could be on the ground for three, four, or five days before you get to fly back to your base. Uh, and funnily enough, in that time, the infantry guys that you're with will utilise you as a bomb disposal asset. Yeah, it would make sense to It's like an IED dustbin man. <laughs> Get all their rubbish <laughs> yeah. together for when you arrive. Yeah. Exactly. Now, we, you were talking there about um, you know, how you go about getting rid of a device, and you, most of the stuff, for obvious reasons, was done at a safe distance uh, because there's no point putting your life at risk unless you actually have to. This wasn't the case on uh, the day where, I guess, is one of the reasons why you got your George Cross on the the particular day where I think yeah. every, everything all everything didn't go to plan. Um, would you be able to just tell us about that day? Yeah, of course. Um, so that was the 16th of August um, 2009. Um, my team and I were in a place called Sangin. And uh, for those who don't know, Sangin's in uh, Helmand province. And for the British soldier, it was known as hell. Um, because nothing ever good came out of Sangin. Um, you know, every time a team went there, you can guarantee someone would be killed or someone would be injured. Um, so we we kind of were there supporting the two rifles. Um, and our task that day was to go out on patrol with them. And um, they were going to get us to a point in that patrol where my search team would take over and they were going to clear a route. And once that route was cleared, they were going to isolate two compounds. We were going to sit in the compounds and kind of just wait to see what the enemy were doing. Um, so that was us. So we left before first light. Uh, and the idea behind that was the, the Taliban would either be asleep or they would be just getting up for morning prayer. So in theory, they would leave us alone. We then patrolled out with the guys. Um, and it was about 10 minutes into the patrol where we heard an explosion to our front Um about 100 metres or so in front of us. Um, and and I, I talk about it, uh, or I describe it in such a way that uh, an explosion to an EOD operator is very it's very much like hearing your best friend's voice. You instantly recognise the, the, your friend's voice. So an EOD guy instantly recognises the, the, the signature of homemade explosives detonating, whether that be the crispness of the blast, the overpressure, the sound, etc. So straight away, we knew that an IED had functioned to the forward of the patrol. Um, we went to ground to, to listen to see if um, what was going on on the radio um, and we, we heard that there was a casualty up the front or a couple of casualties. Um, so my search team started to clear an emergency helicopter landing site to the left of our position. Um, and it's only really when they were conducting that search to clear that, that HLS where we heard a second explosion. Um, and it's at that point there that we got called forward. Um, and we, we kind of got... Uh, we, I went forward with with my team behind me, and we came across a, a dried riverbed, um, which is called a wadi. Um, so very pebbly, some reeds, that sort of thing. Um, and it was a bit weird because time kind of like slowed down for me. Then it's like you see in the movies where the you see someone's mouth moving, but you can't actually hear what they're saying because you're just trying to take in all of this information. Um, and it's only really then when time kind of almost sped up that I started to see um, what could only be described as carnage in front of me. You know, there was there was troops spread all over the area. There was um, 
a, a weird sort of red mass in front of me, which I kind of couldn't get to grips with what it was. And then I started hearing screaming of a, a female to my left-hand side. Um, and pretty, pretty much what had happened that morning was the, the lead guy, a guy called Fully, um, had stood on a pressure plate IED, which unfortunately um, injured him really badly. Um, the the medic, the female medic started applying first aid and they put him onto a stretcher. And it was at that point there where one of the stretcher bearers stood on a, a second IED, um, which unfortunately killed both of the stretcher bearers outright. Um, the, the medic was thrown 20 meters to the left-hand side and fully, who had already been blown up once at this point, had been blown up a second time um, and he got thrown off the stretcher and was the, subsequently the red mass that I saw in front of me. Um, and a number of other guys were injured with blast and fragmentation injuries, but nothing too crazy. Um, and that was pretty much the scene that we'd come across. But what inevitably had happened is the guys had walked into an IED minefield um, and they, these things were were everywhere. Um, and my searchers, and they did such a fantastic job that day, basically set about clearing safe lanes to the casualties to enable the, the medic um, that was with us to to, to give first aid. Um, and it's only really during that process that we started finding more IEDs. Um, and uh, there was a, an IED next to the, the medic that was injured. She, you know, she was really badly, the lower part of her body was badly injured. The legs, one of her legs was hanging off and, you know, she was in quite a bad way. Um, so it's then where my team started finding, I'd said this, what my searches were for, that, you know, they're subject matter experts in search. They It's their job to find IEDs and they did a fantastic job of doing so. Um, and then it was my job to obviously go forward and, and make an assessment. And unfortunately, because the devices were um, uh, in the way of basically being able to extract the casualties, um, and basically there was, by not doing anything to those devices there and then, there was a, a grave and immediate threat to the life of everyone around them, including the casualties, they kind of needed to be dealt with. Um, and, and that's when the whole sort of red wire, blue wire, if you will, comes comes into play. You know, you dealt with, you've got a device in front of you, you need to make a number of cuts in the circuit or whatever it is you need to do to render that device safer. Um, and that's pretty much how, how that task un unraveled. And we found an additional seven devices in and around the casualties that morning, um, five of which had to be dealt with there and then because they were hindering the evacuation. Um, and and we, we subsequently managed to get the guys off the ground, unfortunately fully died on route to hospital. So we lost three guys that morning. Um, but we were able to recover the, the other casualties and we subsequently were able to recover the dead soldiers off the battlefield. Um, and then once that was done, um, we then went forward and I, I disposed of the seven devices that were there because you know we didn't want to hang around so we just i just blew them up um it, where they were you know they were a little bit safer i managed to get some forensic evidence off of them um and then where their explosive main charges were which all each each device in itself had approximately 20 kilograms of homemade explosive underneath wow. it. so they were serious devices um, yeah oh yeah it, it, insane amount of explosives you know absolutely ruined the day um and we subsequently I set time fuses, so burning fuses on them to, to blow them as we let, so literally lit them and we walked away and it's like one of those explosions to, happened, you know, as we were going back to 
we could see that there were dozens more devices in the ground. You can see the ground sign. They were everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Um, now, an EOD operator's, you know, sort of a wet dream, if you would be, to, is to, to stay there all day and to clear bombs. You know, that's what we do. And that's why I, I would have I would have loved to have stayed there all day and, and just smashed those devices out of the ground. But unfortunately, we... Um, you know, as I said, we lost three guys that morning. We had a number of injured. We needed to go back. You know, the 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 mission got scrubbed. We went back to the patrol base to, you know, kind of reflect on what had happened. It's one thing being under the the stressful situation of actually disarming an IED, but it is a totally different story when you've got injured friends around you. How do you, how, I mean, this might be an impossible question, but how do you compartmentalize the task that you have at hand with all of this chaos and carnage around you? Um, so, so EOD operators, we are, uh, funny I mentioned this in the book, we are a, a very different breed to your average soldier. We, you've kind of got to have a weird sort of sixth sense of humor to do what we do. Um, and you've got to you've got to be able to look at something and just laugh at it. You know, you have to have that sort of sense of humour to be able to just get on with the job. Because if you if you if you break your focus because you're worried or you know you're thinking about a dead soldier that you might be close to or you're thinking about an injured person, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, your focus then goes away from the task in hand. Um, and again, as weird as it sounds, you know, I've got I've got friends that have been blown up you know I've, I've lost friends and you kind of just you don't you know you reflect after the fact but if you're there certainly that day on the ground my my priority was to get the injured off the ground and and my second priority was to recover the, the fallen soldiers as respectfully as i could in line with keeping everyone else around me safe um and you know, you kind of just you kind of just get on with the task. You know, we're trained in such a way to be able to think outside of the box and to be able to just focus on a task and get that task done. You know, and then do your fraction later on. But again, as I say do it later on. You know, that afternoon we were out on another job. You know, so we were so we were constantly busy. We've kind of covered a, a large proportion of the book. We kind of kind of follow follow the timeline and. Um, obviously you've given the fairly, well, actually quite well detailed of the day, but in the book, it goes into a huge amount of detail and that's why everyone must either read it or listen to it. Um, after, after that day, um, it was actually not too far to the end of your deployment. Am I right? Yeah, just, just, just under two thirds of the way through. Cause I, my, my R and R got brought forward early cause I, I subsequently got injured in an explosion. Um, when I, through no fault of my own, I was in a vehicle that drove over an IED. Um, so my my R and R sent me home to recover um, <laughs> on my R and R, which was nice of them. Yeah, um, <laughs> and then some, you know, not not go home and have fun. Go home and recover from your injuries, and then come back when you're well. Um, and then literally, that was the first day. That was the first day back on the ground. That 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 after coming home. Oh, sorry, after returning to operations after being at home. Quite a welcome. Um, and then I. I yeah, literally, it was proper straight back into it. And then, yeah, so I think that was August. And then October time, I think my deployment finished. So, well, we, we want people to read the books. I do. I just wanted to ask one more thing. Is the right at the end, 
your uh, your brutal honesty with <laughs> very, <laughs> very senior uh, personnel and politicians without just uh, just a little snippet of that because I it really I was sitting on the plane when I listened to that and I found myself <laughs> laughing out loud and people looking at me with my with my earphones and they're probably thinking I was listening to some sort of comedy sketch or that uh, but it, I just I found it so funny that your brutal honesty with exactly what how it was was how it was and that's what you were going to say no matter who it was you were speaking to yeah yeah so that was um yeah it was the defense secretary came out with um ops with the home secretary and and me and my guys have been on the ground for you know been on the ground for weeks um literally smashing ieds every day like like every operator did over there um and i remember coming in and literally we you, you just imagine it you know body armor and weapons hanging off you like you've been on a you know a week-long firefight and you just unshaven and stinking and you know you just wanted people to leave you alone um and i got went into i remember going to the option and told by my boss you know um welcome back go and get you know shaved go and get new uniform on etc cetera, etc cetera. you're giving a demonstration to the defense secretary and i initially i sort of laughed and went yeah nice one thanks very much for that good joke um but then got told no it's happening um and even though, you know, you try and argue the point, but inevitably you're in the army and you do as you're told. So we went and did that. Um, and as I said, it, it wasn't, it was one of those things. You just, you just want to be left be because you've been out and about amongst it. You've had you know? enough. Um, but in, um, yeah, yeah. So we pretty much did it. We did the whole, you know, put all you, you know, you know, the army, we love, we love good straight lines. All your kit in a nice line or all, all clean kit, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, yeah, and the defence secretary came round, and I was pretty much told um, by my chain of command to talk about lightweight kits, talk about helicopters. This is what we need, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, which is it was absolutely right. Um, but when it when it came down to it, when the defence secretary spoke to me, um, I gave him a quick brief on my team and what what we did and what we've been doing, and he just, he literally just said, you know, what what is it you need? Um, and kind of instantly, I was like, "Well, we need more guys. You're not you're not giving us enough manpower. You know, we we go out on the ground and clear IEDs, you know, days and days and days at a time, but we can't hold that ground. So as soon as we leave, the Taliban come up with the bombs back in. Um, and it, I don't think that's what he was expecting. And <laughs> I, I, the, the press had an absolute field day with it. Yeah, um, it was the last thing they wanted was to put more people on the ground at that point in time in terms of politics back at home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it kind of, I was, it's funny because I remember walking into the ops room the next day. And I, again, some of I talk about in the book where and I checked my Facebook account and one of the guys was like, you know, um, oh, in fact, going back a little bit after he, after he, um, he left, one of the guys kind of said to me, you know, do you really think you should have, you should have done that or said that? And I was like, you know what, what's he going to do? Send me home. <laughs> um, uh, and but little did I know at the time that there was a journo stood behind me, and it, it was like his payday. He literally quoted me instantly. Um, and so when I checked my Facebook the following day, and one of the guys, you know, laugh out loud, "What's he going to do? Send me home? You're a legend." And I, was like, I have no idea what you're talking. About. No idea what you're on about. And then turned on Sky News because everyone in the ops room was really sheepish, looking at me, sort of giggling. And I turned on Sky News and literally it was there as a quote, <laughs> um, you know, and I'm like, I'm, it was almost like my world was about to end. And I was like, oh, no, you know, send me back out on the ground to do some bombs. I don't want to be here right now. Um, and yeah, but funnily enough, you know what, the the army, the, the 
the chain of command in Afghanistan at the time was like, you know what? If he if he he shouldn't have asked the soldier the truth, yeah, or or a question, you know, if he didn't want the truth, sorry. So I've been out on the ground for however many long, however many weeks at a time to be asked a question, and he he got the answer that he got, and and to be honest, it was it was wasn't disrespectful, it wasn't anything like that at all, and it was just like okay, it was a very honest conversation, which subsequently got kind of blown out of proportion a little bit in the media, which and everyone kind of laughed off. Um, but it was good, and it made for a really made for a really good chapter in the book. Yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah, um, but but like you said, it was it was the truth. You'd been on the ground, and you'd seen what was needed. And uh, the, the the very end of the book, it was kind of evident when um, you write about the Taliban unfortunately planting IEDs on the training ground. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was very unfortunate. You know, they they managed because the the training area at that period of time was was outside of the wire of Camp Bastion. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the, the Taliban managed to, to sneak in under the hours of darkness and plant a, uh, an IED on one of our ranges. So when you obviously come into theatre and you go onto the range, the first thing you, one of the first things you do is re-zero your weapon. Um, and unfortunately, the guys were on the, on the range and, and uh, a soldier stood on an IED and it was just, you know, we, it, was, it was quite bad. And it was far from ideal. Yeah. Now, moving slightly away from your book, because obviously we want people to uh, to actually listen to it. In fact, I've got a question. The, the audio book, how, how, did yes. you get to decide who narrated it? Because the narration was very good. Yeah, no. So um, uh, initially when when we did the kind of the, the contract and the deal on that, it was they wanted me to narrate. And I was like, I have to be honest, again, did you? Do not read the book. I struggle to read at the best of times, <laughs> and to read my own book as well. Um, and uh, it was like no. And then it was backwards and forwards. Okay, well, I do the dialogue part of the book, where someone else reads it. And inevitably, they went to they went to a chap, and he was absolutely fantastic. Um, and and he did, um, yeah, he did such a good job. And it, and he, he spoke really, you know, really good. And we we probably spent an hour, probably two hours. Um, just going through like acronyms and stuff. So he, he said it, you know, he said the right things, how they, how they're said properly in army terminology and all this sort of, so he had a, a really good understanding of it. Um, and yeah, and then he smashed it out of the park. He did, he did extremely well. Uh, what's the, the uptake been like? Cause you know, it's only been out not really that long in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's gone, it's, been so crazy you know it's done it's done extremely well um i i was very fortunate that my my publisher has an office in australia so when i was over there on holiday um i popped in and did some media bits with them and i did a i did an awful lot um of media in the uk for the hardback and then i did i must have done about 30 radio interviews live in Australia from the UK. So it was either extremely late nights or extremely early mornings um, over here. So, and I did so much and, you know, it, it became a Sunday times bestseller in the first couple of weeks. And, and subsequently it hit the, it was within the top five in Australia. So it then became an international bestseller. That's crazy. Um, And it's, and you know, the paperback came out, a couple of or a week ago and and instantly the sales have gone through the roof on it it's doing so so well what was um, it that actually prompted you to write the book afterwards other than um, it being an absolutely incredible story but I mean, there must have been something 
that made you go, you know what? I yeah, need to it's a big down. undertaking. Yeah. It's not, you know, you don't you don't just do it in one <laughs> evening, write, write a book like that. No, it took a while. Funnily enough, when, you know, following my award, I was a lot of people, and it was usually on the social sort of side, said, oh, you know, you should write a book and all this sort of stuff. And I was kind of, I kind of played it down and said, no, you know what? I'm not ready for it. And it was only really um, during my last tour of Afghanistan where I was actually out there with my brother. Um, and my so my older brother and I was sending I was sending him out on the ground to do bombs because I was running the teams out there at that time um, to do what I had done a few years earlier um, and we bumped into a friend of mine um, a guy called Dave Willits who is the defense editor for the Sun um, in in Camp Bastion he was over there doing some work and um, he was oh what you know we had a chat what are you doing here and I said oh this is my bro you know he's out here and he was like you know can we this is great can we do the story and um a few days later there was a film crew turned up and um dave and we did this big um you know brothers kind of brother kind of brothers in arms thing on tour um and it was only really off the back end of that coming out that i was contacted um from from a chap i know to say now is the time to write the book um and so we, we had a couple of meetings with the publishers and, and agents and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and yeah, and it, it fell out like that. And that's pretty much how it went. And it, it was literally, um, it was crazy. It went from me being on tour to coming back to the UK. And obviously, because I'm still serving, the MOD had to sign off on it and all this sort of thing, which, which they were absolutely fantastic on. So, um, so yeah, so the MOD, um, they were great because obviously I'm still serving. Um, they they had to ratify the book and et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, it literally, I mean, it, it took about a year and a half to do um, in total because uh, obviously I've got a day job as well. So um, so yeah, and it, and it, when it came out, you know, it's it, it's just gone crazy and um, and it's still doing so so well. And with the with the paperback out this this past week, it's just been it's just been phenomenal. Very satisfying to see to see something that you worked on like that actually in physical form. I imagine when you saw it come off the printers in hardback, it must have been must have been a good feeling for you. Now we're going to have to get a hardback copy signed. I yeah, think. <laughs> of course. Yeah, no, the hardback. To be honest, I I wasn't expecting it because we did um, we did the we had to obviously once the book had been written, we had to do the 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 cover for it and then the back for the book as well and so we i thought we were going through it and we saw some we did some uh we had a big photo sort of shoot thing going on and, and i thought okay brilliant we're still talking about it and then funnily enough i received a, a box from my my publisher in the post and i just i didn't think anything of it until i opened it and it was the book and i went all right, I, I thought we were still doing stuff with it. You know, it's <laughs> done because um, we, we we had agreed we had agreed on the cover and that was it. But I thought for some reason I thought there was more stuff to do. Like I'm I'm not even sure. But then I remember sitting down um, and instantly feeling knackered. Yeah, that was one one thing I remember. I was just knackered straight just away relief. because it, yeah, it's you know a year and a half of writing. Um, and it's, it's, it's all it's, redone, and I was like, "It's just crazy." It's a very personal thing as well, Big emotional because yeah. you, me and Byron were actually talking about before. We, we both um, listened and read to uh, a lot of military books. Not a huge amount of them actually go into quite a lot of uh, the detail of the start of life when you're growing up and so on. Often they start at you know a few weeks before deployment and deployment 
and then a little bit after but very few go into the yeah. kind of details that your yours do go into yeah absolutely and and to be honest um, i think it surprised a lot of people as well because you know i told people and you know when i decided that it's what i was going to do i just you know people thought it's going to be bombs and bullets and you know running down the road with a pair of snips in your mouth and you know cutting wires and all this sort of stuff and it and it they were very surprised when they read it when actually that's not that's not what it is at all. You know, it's about my life as struggling as a kid in school and, and moving on. And, and it sort of flows that sort of chronological piece and it, and it, and it kind of worked really well. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it's extremely difficult to, to be able to um, sort of put together all your thoughts and make, and, you know, remember stuff and I remember going through all my old reports and etc and it's quite a difficult process it's a very personal process I mean I'm, I'm now moving I've moved into fiction or I'm moving into fiction and it's um so the process is so different so so different because you're not having to um you know having to think about how you felt and the smell of the the ground after the explosion and the, the you know the environment and talking about it in intimate detail to trying to make sure every point is as it would be you know it's two completely different dynamics i think uh anybody who has read it or is going to read it or listen to it uh will take some form of inspiration from 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 your story uh in life and the actual stories that, that you told them what is possible if you put your mind to it and from that i want to ask you about the receiving the George Cross and that and that process. When did you find out about it? What is the process like? Um, because I mean, what an incredible uh, achievement and acknowledgement of what you did. Because not many people that yeah, can say I mean, ever that they got one, so <laughs> it's an achievement and yeah. a half. Yeah, it's it was it was weird really because I remember being called into my um, my uh, adjutant's office when because I, I was teaching at our bomb disposal school at that point. And he was being really sheepish, uh, and he was like, he come up with some sort of elaborate story that I've been invited to go to London for a party, um, and I was allowed to take five of my family, um, and I was like, or five family and friends. I was like, okay, yeah, cool. Have you got any details on it? Because it, it was a post post Afghanistan tour party, and I was like, oh, it sounds great. Yeah, let's do it. Um, and I was asking all these questions, and his answers just weren't sort of added up. And I was like, so what? I don't. Why are you? Why are you not telling me what I want to know? And he kind of broke, and he went, "Right, you've been you you've been nominated for an award." I was like, "All right, yeah, great. What? You know, I, I don't. I, I didn't. I didn't think it was a medal. I, I, I don't know what I thought it was. You know." Um, and then he's kind of. It was weird because he kind of stood up from his desk and sort of pushed his monitor from his computer around and walked out of the office. <laughs> and um, so that he had no, he had no, he had no part in telling me and it didn't say what the award was. It just said uh, nominated for a, a level one award. And I was like, I still none the wiser what this is. Um, and then until I went back up to, um, I went back up to my work and I sort of asked the guys and they were like we don't know so we sort of looked at it and it was the victoria cross or george cross both level one awards and um i was like no that can't that can't be it and then subsequently the thing in london was the announcement uh, the announcement post the london gazette um edition to say you've been awarded it so it was like a ceremony at um uh 
the, the Honourable Artillery Company in London. So this was before my investiture with the Queen, and this was just to announce it. And it was myself and uh, a friend of mine, Olaf Schmidt, who who got his posthumously because he unfortunately lost his life. Um, so his his wife was there to to get the citation. And then once you've got that and it had been announced, then um, you get a, a really nice you know letter from the palace saying congratulations. Um, <laughs> and it was and it's really weird actually because because it's level award congratulations when would you like to meet the queen <laughs> and, and they were sort of they were asking me and that's I went, amazing and they get as opposed to oh and as i think i think the, the process normally is you know you're if you get an award they they say right you can come to the the the, the investors on this date please be there but they gave me a number of dates and a number of locations Obviously not. I I choose. Yeah, I want to I want to meet the Queen on a Saturday afternoon. It was no. Obviously these are a number of dates where the Queen is going to be at the palace. She's going to be wherever. Which one would you like to attend? And I was like, Jesus, you know. And then subsequently went and you know we had a. I took my um, my mum and my brother and my brother's wife, um, and we we had a fantastic day. You know, we went to the palace. The Queen was absolutely fantastic. Um, she, you know, she was so clued up. She's very knowledgeable and absolutely very well informed. Um, and then we we had a, a, an afternoon and a night in London, and it was it was amazing. Oh, fantastic! What what an what an experience! A well deserved award Absolutely. award as well. No, sorry. Did you have another question? I, I was going to ask: Has it opened up any uh, doors? You know, you're getting bookings at restaurants a bit easier, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> no, I mean I. Um, it has absolutely changed my my life um, with regards to you know having this award, having the post normals after your name, doesn't necessarily open up restaurants, but I, <laughs> I, some of some of the social um, engagements I go to, I would never have been to if I hadn't been awarded the, the George Cross. Um, and I, you know, I am so grateful, and it is such an honour to be to be given that award, and I wear that. Award on behalf of my team because it was a team effort that day it's not just about one guy but it has you know and and doing and it's given by having that award gave me the ability to write write my book uh it's given me the ability to go out and do what i want to do potentially write some more books etc etc so yeah, i'm very extremely grateful um and it has you know i i, I go do some cool stuff uh, that, that is great how long have you got left in the army? Um, so I've done twenty-one years this October. Um, I've got a, I've, I've got you know my twenty-two year point, which is our normal career point, is next next year. Um, but I've got the the ability to stay in if I want to, um, and I'm kind of in that sort of bit at the moment where I'm trying to make the decision what my next step is going to be. Do I do I stay in the army? Do I commission and become an officer? Or do I do I leave at twenty two years and go and write books or or whatever, whatever it may be. Um and that's kind of all just go and shoot. You know, I would absolutely love that. You know, get out of twenty two years and go and manage an estate somewhere. Um I think that that, that that for me would be amazing. That brings us very nicely on to actually the connection from the very start of the podcast, which was that uh, it was it was John at um, Blackwell's Gunsmiths that got us in contact with you because you were in to go and yeah. buy or order a hunting rifle. I think so. Some people might think that after being in the military, 
especially having done the number of tours that you've done around gunfire and gunfighting and just those kind of scenarios all the time you might not want to pick up a gun that might be the sort of person on the street they might they might think that why would you want to go and pick up a gun again uh for recreational purposes yeah, I mean, some people are like that. You know, I, I know friends that, you know, have absolutely no interest in, in guns, no interest in shooting whatsoever. I mean, I've always been interested in shooting. I've, from a very young age, um, air rifles. Um, and then, you know, during that, funnily enough, during that period I spoke about in, in Germany where I wasn't doing bomb disposal, I got massively into clay pigeon shooting. Um, so it was a fantastic um play range just just on a base just across from where i was and um slowly from that i then came back to um to when i got posted to a bomb disposal school you know in in kyneton in warwickshire the the vermin on the training area i remember being out you know trying to dig in uh, an ied for my students to come and deal with and there was just rabbit holes and and you know and and all that sort of stuff everywhere and i was like you know someone needs to do something about this and, and one of my friends actually um, it was into shooting and he said, well, let's just, let's do the vermin control here. And that's how I kind of got into it. Um, and then it just, it just went, I got, I got a taste. You got bitten crazy, by the bug. You know? Yeah. So I, I, you know, I went into, I, I literally, my house was like an armory, um, <laughs> you know, every kind of shotgun I could, you know, every time I saw a, a new shotgun, I wanted it. So I bought it, you know, from, uh, then into, uh, you know, two, two, um, bolt actions, two, two semi-auto to, um, uh, long barrel pistols. Cause I got into a lot of competition shooting. So, um, uh, got into practical shotgun, um, uh, mini rifle competitions all the way through to long range shooting. Um, that's good fun out in Wales. Yeah, oh, it's, it's so much fun. You know, I, I go to a place called Orion in, in Wales. And yeah, have, I know. We have yeah. a right laugh. I've shot there before. Yeah, it's, it's really, really good. Really good. And then, then I subsequently got into deer management um, as well. So I, I kind of did my DSE 1, my DSE 2, got into defense deer management, and then subsequently into um, uh, helping manage other estates in and around where I am. And, and that's kind of where I'm, and I've kind of progressed. I always go through phases of I buy a gun. I'm never going to sell that because it's the best gun in the world. And then I see something else I want. So I sell the first gun I got. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and it, it kind of brought me into the whole ordering my, my new gun. So, oh, John. and what, to tell me, tell me about that. I don't, I actually didn't actually get around to asking John what it was that you'd ordered. So I, I've always been fascinated by the, um, single shot brake barrel, um, always. So the, the blazer, um, and, I've kind of, I don't know why, because my, my gun, my rifle collection's just a bit weird. I go from, you know, your Remy 700s, so I've got uh, one of those. I, I've got a, a Desert Tech as my tactical gun. I've got a um, TRG-22 as my, my long-range gun. And I've always fancied a classic-looking gun, and I've always been fascinated by the, the brake bar. So I, I approached John um, and his guys there, uh, and Rupert, because um, uh, I wanted a K95, yeah, but I beautiful. wanted the I wanted the I wanted the Stutzen, I wanted the full the full wood, I wanted the engraving, I wanted the full package. You know, it's and it's almost like a, a gentleman's gun. Mm, it is. Um, you know, you want to shoot one roe deer a year, <laughs> you know that kind of that kind of thing. But I mean, I, I shoot a lot more than that. Um, but I want you know, it's one of those. I had the money. I've always wanted it. And I went, you know what? Let's do it. Yeah, um, at some point, you've got to treat yourself. 
yeah yeah so and that's that's kind of the way i've gone with it you know and they've they've um they you know they're putting a fantastic bit of wood on it for me for the stock they've got some really nice engraving on there for roe deer and you know i've got a really nice bit of glass to put on top of it you know i've got a nice lica that's going to go on to it when it when it's done you know so so yeah that's that's kind of me and i'm i'm super excited by it you know i'm i'm waiting for it to come in and I'm, I'm going to go. I mean, I've I've got it in 308, so it's going to be a bit pokey. Yeah, but it's I, quite a light, quite a light rifle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, it's been one of these because I've never really, I've never been able to see one and hold it. I've always seen it in pictures and okay. I've sort of read reviews, and I've seen that. But it was the shooting show it was this year. Oh, Tim um, Pilbeam did I one, find, didn't he? I, yeah, that I finally, I finally got my hands on one. I went. Actually, the one I the one I looked at was a light the light version. It wasn't the, the Stutzen. So I was like, "Well, that's that's quite light." That so you want to push a three hundred eight through that, and it's going to sting a little bit. But I don't care. <laughs> the thing is, though, I mean, those rifles they're so well balanced, and because it's going to be fitted to you, even though it's light, you're probably not even going to notice it. Especially you know, especially yeah. when you're using it in anger when you're hunting. It's one thing shooting on the range. Exactly. When you're hunting with it, you won't you won't even give it. Yeah, it's not. It's not like I'm going to be shooting dozens around through it, you know. So it's going to be absolutely fine. I'm, 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 I'm very much looking forward to it. And, and funnily enough, I've been pestering John every week, saying, "When's it ready? When's it ready?" I was and, just going to ask you when it's it. ready. Does he has he given you a date? Um, uh, I think I, I, the last I heard was the end of this month. Okay, well, so you've, you've said it on the podcast now, so now it has to be the end of this month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, it'll be the end of this month, and I can I can go out. And, um, you know, I can go out and shoot. Unfortunately, we've missed. Um, we're out of fallow season now. So, but uh, but row rut, row rut will be around the plan, corner plan, by the time yeah. you get that. So, I hope you're going to yeah, team it up with so. some team it up with some nice uh, like German lauden and a traditional European hat just to just to finish the whole thing <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm very very excited by it. You know, it's going to be it's going to be great. There's um is there as opposed to the lump that I'm carrying now. <laughs> is there a an there's an MOD um scheme isn't there for for people who are into stalking for for stalking on MOD ground? Yeah, so yeah, defense deer management absolutely. Um and I'm I'm a member. Um it's and it's fantastic, you know, it's great. It gives you the, the ability to go out um learn about the animals um and and you know and help manage population you know because that's what it's all about and and it's not any the, the beauty of it is which can be somewhat frustrating to to people that are experienced shooters that want to get into it um it's not a case of pick up your gun and go and shoot what you want you know there are there are processes in place there are hoops to jump through no matter how much experience you've got it's almost it's almost I'd, I'd put it down to almost like being in the army you know you have to promote up through before you can be let loose if you will to go out and stalk on your own you know uh, so there's okay. a lot of mentoring involved etc cetera, etc cetera. you don't just go and shoot you have to you know um every every stalk you go on you then go and write that stalk up and then your mentor or sort of adds his comments to it so it's all it's, it's it's really good it's educational it's a big learning process um for someone that is an experienced stalker that tries to come into it um it is it isn't a case of just signing on the dotted line and then you can go and shoot on any bit of mod land whatsoever there is processes involved um so it can be some it can be a little bit frustrating if you are a seasoned stalker um 
but those processes are there for a reason and and you know once you have proven yourself to your your the, the group that you are assigned to and you are competent and they are they are happy for you to progress then it's it's an absolutely fantastic thing to be a part of I had no idea that it was so involved. I'd heard it mentioned by people that, who I know or have known in the past, but I, I didn't know it was so involved to be part of it. Um, but that's that's great that that's the yeah. kind of and it's hardly surprising actually, being that it's part of the military that there's that sort of level level of responsibility. But I just didn't I didn't realize it. Well, if yeah, it's it, it's fantastic. If you find your yourself up uh, up north, north of the wall, then uh, you need to give us a shout so that you can uh, come out with us. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll bring the new gun. <laughs> yeah, you'll have yeah. to do that. Uh, Kim, it's been tremendous having you on today. Uh it's uh yeah, it's been great to to speak to you in person having having read your book and and It's it's really weird actually part of because the experience, because yeah. we when you read a book especially one like yours, you kind of feel like you know you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> already. <laughs> Which is a weird yeah. thing, you know, pe- pe- people knowing you but that you've obviously got no idea who they are. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. I really am. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, I read a lot of books like that, but it's it's right right up there. It was a, a thrilling. Well, for for, for me and Daryl, uh, listen, because <laughs> it's the easiest way for us to consume while we're traveling. A, a thrilling listen from start to finish. Do you have much uh, run-ins with the, the the clearance divers, which is the best branch in the navy? <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, I do, funnily enough, I do actually. We I work quite closely with them. Um, the uh yeah the diving guys the EOD diving guys they're really they're a really good bunch of guys actually um funnily enough i had a i had a um uh, a regimental dinner with them on hms nelson uh, last month um which was an absolutely fantastic um experience um such a such a good bunch of guys and and god what an honor to to even step foot on the boat to be really honest yeah uh, in fact i i think i know um my old warrant officer, he was, I think he was at the same dinner, so you probably bumped into him. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Kim, and uh, it's, if you got like a web, you do have a website, I think, actually. No, no, I don't. My publisher has a website, Simon Schuster. Um, my, my, the book um, the book is on there. Um, I'm sure you can Amazon it, uh, I'm or, sure. Or, yeah. Or Google. Yeah. Yeah, Google. Well, we'll, we'll put all the links up uh, on in the description of the show so that people can find out where to where to grab it. But thanks for coming on. Amazing. Thank you ever so much for your time. Well, what a podcast. Um, I, th- I think there's uh, yeah, some really cool elements to take away from it. And inspirational too. Yeah, inspirational. Really, really grateful that um, Kim came on and shared the story. And we are going to have more things like this coming on. on yeah, the show. I think we're gonna we're gonna try and uh, diversify a bit. In the, the we're gonna carry on bringing you awesome people, which we always have done, uh, but maybe not always a hundred percent focused. Uh, on the on the hunting side, which is which we've always been heavy on, a little bit more fishing, a little bit more adventure, exploration, and just great stories. Yeah, that's the plan. Uh, remember, you can download this show in many different ways. Uh, most podcast apps have us now. Uh, the main ones being iTunes, which is where most people listen. Then you've got Stitcher, Acast, Podbean. Uh, it's also on SoundCloud for desktop. I think I think you can actually download it on your phone now, but I'm not entirely sure because I don't really look at it. Uh, and Spotify being another big one. Um, I believe that nearly still... Uh, all of the Android devices are slightly delayed. Um, so 
it can be delayed from six hours to a day. So sorry about that, out of our control. Uh, but don't forget to enter our two competitions, one to win a pair of tickets for the Scottish Game Fair at Schoon Palace and the second one to win a, a vintage Hornady sign. All the info for that will be on our social media. And if you want to see more about us and if you want to head to the shop, it is all the W's, thepacebrothers.com. It has everything there that you need to know. Uh, and if you, uh, just lastly, are interested in the films that we've made, because we make a lot of films which we are not in, but we've made for other people, uh, and if you like this podcast, you probably like quite a lot of those films, I have just been uh, busy updating both our YouTube and our Vimeo. Vimeo is a much nicer platform if you enjoy visually looking at films. So there's, there's a lot of new films on there of work that we've done for various people, and literally as this podcast goes out, there will be a new film out um, on YouTube if you go to our Pace Productions YouTube channel and have a look for the latest film, which is In Search of Science, uh, which is um, a film made on an estate not very far from where our office is, and it's all about the, the research, essentially, of waders and predation. It's very cool. It, it join us again in two weeks' time. 